Welcome to Business Unmuted, the Northern Business Podcast, sponsored by Virtue Motors, one of the UK's largest motor retailers. Check out its website at virtuemotors.com. I'm Graham Robb and I've owned Recognition PR for nearly 35 years. We've got 75 clients spaced across the UK. Between them, they have a turnover of around £6 billion and employ 30,000 people. So we're at the front line of the business community and perfectly placed to discuss the economic climate. Make sure you never miss an episode of Business Unmuted by subscribing on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. In the studio today, we've got Graham Sult, a high street expert and the founder of retail consultancy CannyInsights.com. Down the line, we've Stephen Patterson, chief executive of Newcastle NE1, the Newcastle Business Improvement District, the biggest business improvement district in the UK. And also down the line, we've John Ashmore, editor of CapEx, the media arm for the Centre for Policy Studies. Welcome all. And before I get to talk to you all, I just want to tell our viewers, I've been away for a couple of weeks and I've been to Philadelphia. I went for my daughter's wedding, but I stayed back a few uh, days to talk to someone who runs a, a PR firm like mine and is connected with the greater Philadelphia Chamber of Commerce, a guy called Jay Devine. And we swapped uh, uh, brochures about our respective economic areas. Very interesting to visit the US at the moment. There's a lot of economic growth going on. There's a lot of entrepreneurial activity. In the city of Philadelphia, it was quite a buzzy place to be, very similar to the north of England in its demographics, and focusing on ed and med, ed education with the state of uh, Pennsylvania's university, Penn University, and uh, research into lots of medical things. They discovered the BRCA1 gene there, so a lot of gene therapy jobs, and similar kind of um, economic challenges that we have here, the levelling up of certain communities and also the recruitment of skilled and retention of skilled staff in their economic zone. So it's a very interesting trip. John, what do you make of our economy at the moment? Viewed from CapEx, all right, in the centre of London, you talk to a lot of people who are in the swim of government policy. There's been a lot of data coming out the most interesting comments this week were from the uh, Bank of England uh, economist who said we've all got to get used to being poorer. Yeah, unfortunately, I think Hugh Pill is right, but not in the sense that he intended. Uh, I think that our politicians have been tacitly telling us for the best part of a generation that we kind of need to accept decline as a country. And I mean that in the sense that we simply don't get thing the things built that we need as a country in order to mm. enable us to prosper. If you want to build here in London, the Lower Thames Crossing, for example, you need thousands of pages of documentation. The planning consultation is set to be in the London Stadium, which gives you some idea yeah. of uh, what we're up against. But what, what Hugh Pill was talking about was inflation. He was kind of reiterating what Andrew Bailey said um, a few months ago when he said that people shouldn't ask for wage rises because that would contribute to what we call the wage price spiral. So people constantly bidding up. Um, in pure PR terms, a really silly thing for either of them to say, because I mean, it sounds horrendously out of touch for people on six figure salaries to be telling people lower down the kind of economic food chain that they shouldn't be asking for pay rises, especially when you see the, the price of goods in the shop going up, especially the price of food, some staples going up sort of 15, 20% over the course of a year. Um, there's no sugarcoating the fact that the, the economy looks pretty bleak at the moment. I mean, uh, Graham and Stephen can probably speak to the, the effects on the retail um, of inflation. But I mean, energy, high energy prices feed through to pretty much everything, even to putting the lights and heating an office. 
you know, the cost of delivering pretty much anything in the UK and across most of Europe is much higher now than it was a year ago. Obviously, we can put this down to what we hope are temporary factors, like mm. the war in Ukraine being the most obvious one, the pandemic um, and supply shock that uh, came from that. But the brutal truth is also that we have not been making the right decisions on our infrastructure, things like gas storage, things like power stations, nuclear, there's a transmission cable to from Portsmouth to France that didn't get built because it would have obscured the sight line of something or other. I mean, we make consistently absurd decisions about infrastructure and then act surprised when things are expensive, things haven't been built and, you know, we're not up to the level of our competitor countries. Uh, it costs 10 times as much to build a mile of high-speed rail here than it does in Spain. You know, there are some extenuating reasons for that, but fundamentally everything is much too expensive in Britain for what are fundamentally political reasons. Um, and I just think we need to we need to kind of open our eyes as a nation and realise that we are on the path to decline if we don't change that. I know Rishi Sunak, when he was Chancellor, tried to explain, and I, I watched his speech with great interest. I know him and I watched it with great interest. Every time he gave a, uh, a subsidy or a support, whether it be the furlough or uh, Sybil's loans, he did always say these will have to be paid for and I'm looking forward to the days I can return to being a tax-cutting chancellor, not a tax-rising chancellor, and so on. Uh, but in the end, you know, half a, bill, uh, half a trillion pounds worth of extra borrowing cannot be paid for without some kind of pain. And, and it seems to me that government policy, not necessarily political policy, but policy that's driven through different unrelated arms of government, is contributing to inflation. Now, I'll give you some thoughts. Ofcom. It's an arm of government, but independent, yet it allowed uh, telecoms prices to go up by RPI plus 3.9% last year. Its mind was off the ball, didn't have inflation in its, in its mind. Uh, the Bank of England itself being late, late on interest rate rises. Um, th that, that kind of thing will contribute to inflation. Yeah, I'm, I'd like to pick up on what you mentioned about the Bank of England, because my view, is ultra-cynical view, is that what Andrew Bailey and Hugh Pill are really doing here is kind of deflecting from the bank's own long-term policy failures. Mm. We've had this, and this, this goes for the whole kind of Western monetary world. Right? It's not just the UK. We've had rates that were really low for a really long time, and that's fed into all sorts mm. of negative consequences. It's increased inequality. If you're an asset owner, it was very good. If you weren't, it was very bad. Um, so it, it's easier to create a bit of a stink about some comments you've made in a podcast than to face up to the fact that perhaps the bank has been asleep at the wheel, the Monetary Policy Committee um, of the Bank of and, and, and quantitative easing. Um, I, I've seen adverts on American-based uh, TV channels and radio channels uh, throughout the last five or six years saying the governments of the world are printing money. Come on, buy, buy, the, buy the relevant bonds. And, and actually openly advertising the mistake they're making because there was a lot of money printed and it went on perhaps, and certainly in my personal view, maybe in yours, I don't put it in your mouth, it went on too long and too far. Yeah, I mean, I should stress I'm not a, you know, a, an expert on monetary policy like, like you know, uh, as some of the, the economic commentary are, but it strikes me having spoken to, you know, people who are that quantitative easing was the right, answer for a few as you say during the immediate post-financial crisis years but it took far too long to unwind it and also to 
raise interest rates um, when when they they were, had been flat for such a very long time. If you compare effective interest rates in say the 1980s to now, there's a really big gap um, between them. But it, I mean, I think we shouldn't concentrate only on monetary policy. It's one part of it, but there are all those other things that we we spoke about. Um, supply constraints. We've also also got really big problems in our labour market. Yes. Um, so it's a very complex kind of textured thing. But to be honest, I think the idea the idea that people asking for wage rises is is going to make any difference either way. I think is sort of illusory. And like I say, it feels like a distraction from those other broader issues. And as well as monetary policy and tax and pay, public pay policy, there is also regulatory policy. If you look at a show like, a very popular show like Clarkson's Farm on Amazon, <laughs> there yeah. are some takeaways from that. The bureaucracy that Clarkson illustrates that comes out of DEFRA and the the, the environmental policy in some ways out of DEFRA with increasing rewilding and fewer uh, acres of land available for, say, dairy farming, that is mm. going to drive food costs up, isn't it? Yeah, that's one side of it. The thing that the, my particular bugbear and one we talk about a lot on my website, CapEx, is the effect of those regulations on housing. Obviously, the big meta thing here is the, the planning system, the mm -hmm. Town and Country Planning Act, which was put in place in the 40s after the war. Um, but you mentioned environmental regulation. There's about I think about 100,000 homes that are waiting to be built that can't be because of natural England's nutrient neutrality rules, which sounds a bit obscure. Um, but if, if any of your... Uh, There'll be a lot of viewers in the northeast facing problems and Yorkshire on this, because there are yeah, quite a few planning it, it decisions being made. It seems like madness to me when we're struggling so much with housing starts anyway, particularly in sort of urban areas where the demand is highest, where rent, rents now are getting completely out of control. We talk about it a lot here in London, obviously, because rents are so high, but it's not just a London problem. It's wages to prices are completely out of kilter all over the country. Mm. Um, and it just seems to me that we don't have the political will to take on, particularly now the Tory MPs are looking at quite nervously at their electorates. They don't have the will to take on quite well-organised, sort of nimby-ish tendencies in their own patch. Right, yeah, I'm going to end the end this little bit of the conversation, uh, John, on a more positive note. Um, there's some figures that were released the other day by ONS. Now, they're a bit old, actually. They're, they're last year's data, but they've compiled it uh, relating to the pandemic. Now, some of them say that compared to pre-pandemic, our economy has shifted downwards. The northeast, compared to pre-pandemic, has dropped about 5%. But compared to the peak pandemic, the north of England has grown quite well. 7.5% growth in the UK generally since peak pandemic. 9.4% in the northeast. Yorkshire, 9.9% and 9.9% in the northwest. I flashed that up to screen for viewers. Do you think that the country is now getting to grips with getting out of the post-pandemic malaise? Um, I think we are in terms of rebounding somewhere where we were before, but the brutal truth is that we were on a pretty middling, you know, we were bumping along the bottom even before COVID hit. Growth in this country has been anemic for more than a decade. Um, and that's, people love to pin it on, say, Brexit or, you know, or the pandemic. You know, it's very convenient for ministers to say that it's because of COVID and not because of their own governments, you know, 13 years of their own government's policies. But, you know, we have not had consistent, decent growth in this country for a very long time. Um, and I think we've been kidding ourselves by saying that, oh, we had the best growth in the G7 over the last year. Well, it's because we started from the lowest base. 
um, in the G7. It's not because we've suddenly produced some sort of economic miracle. I should say, I think there are plenty of people in Westminster and beyond um, who get this. It's just trying to fit in the necessary policies around the kind of electoral realities that are, there are. There is a large constituency of property owning older voters who ne generally vote conservative who are very averse to change okay. and especially the kind of change that we need and that's in my view that's the kind of blunt reality of it john we'll just park you there for we'll come back to you to, at the end of the next bit of the discussion that next but we'll focus on one bit of the economy I had a more holistic uh, view there from john and that's retail graham welcome to the program Hi john there. welcome to the program first of all uh, graham uh, flash up the most recent retail data we saw mm. retail sales down uh, non-food sales the uh, the worst online sales a little bit better but generally just under one percent uh, diminished on retail sales uh, when they were last uh, uh, issued and that's from uh, February March over a month the most recent snapshot and, and by the way some of the interpretation was that we're down because of bad weather um, I don't know if that's a good reason what would you think the reason would be that they're down um yeah I suppose I'm uh, I'm a bit skeptical when it comes to data because I get bombarded with data of all sorts around retail sales and confidence and and footfall and an empty shop, so I've, I've learnt by now to kind of not get too obsessed with one set of data, but to try and see it in the, uh, in the round, I suppose. But, but clearly, a retail is, is finding it quite hard going, as inflation is incredibly high. Uh, people, I think, are experiencing inflation that they haven't experienced before in most of our lifetimes. And so that, of course, is having an impact uh, uh, on sales volumes. So people are spending more, but they're still buying only about the same or a bit less than they would be ordinarily. So as that clearly is, a, uh, is an issue. And we're seeing that in terms of, of where people are shopping, that is changing as well. So we're seeing uh, Audi and Lidl, for example, kind of really growing their market share again in the way that they always seem to when there's an economic downturn. Mm. Is there enough competition on other types of retail? Take petrol uh, mm. fuel at supermarkets. You get almost local cartels. If you, I'm based in the town of Darlington, and uh, the petrol price will be virtually the same at every petrol station in this town. But if you travel a little bit further away, say to Bishop Auckland, you can get 10 pence a litre less. But the cost of the petrol to go from that town to the next town uh, it doesn't make it worthwhile. Is there, is there anything about, uh, particularly on, on fuel, uh, where, where, where there is a, a sort of not nearly enough competition in the market. Yeah, um, I'm not a driver, so I'm probably not the best person to ask this question to, but I know, for example, that obviously in recent years, the the uh, owners of kind of EG, Eurogarages, bought mm. Asda. So mm. I think some people would certainly claim that Asda perhaps uh, isn't as competitive uh, in fuel pricing as it used to be. And, and certainly um, uh, I've seen that uh, in the past it would have been the supermarkets that you would go to to kind of get the best prices. And that, I think, has changed. Uh, uh, often these days, in my experience, it's not the supermarkets uh, who are leading on the fuel pricing. It's, uh, it's often the more, uh, more uh, familiar brands, Shell, BP, that kind yeah, of thing. That's interesting. Um, now, we'll come back to you in a moment, but there is uh, one organisation which I, I've got to be fair uh, just to explain, we do a bit of work with uh, this organisation, which is NE1, the Newcastle Business Improvement District. Now, 
we just heard the explanation that retail sales were down because of the weather. It was pouring down last Saturday and I went out shopping in Newcastle because it was raining. I thought, well, I don't want to walk in the country today. It's terrible weather. And I spent the day in a rather nice department store, which has a nice champagne bar, which was a very civilised way to spend Saturday in the pouring rain. What's your view on, on the reason the retail's down and the offer that cities like you have to have to propose to the customer? I think as Graham mentions, when it comes to retail sales um, with the current market conditions, I think what we've actually seen is a polarisation of where people are choosing to spend their money. So I think if you speak to retailers uh, both in city centres and retail parks, they tend to be doing quite well. Um, whereas I think those traditional town centres, those typically, you know, uh, second or third tier retail destinations seem to be uh, in significant decline. Um, if you look at, say, Eldon Square, which no doubt you were in at the weekend, if you managed to tear yourself away from the champagne bar, Graham, <laughs> um, you know, their vacancy rate, I think, in the minute is in the low single digits, mm. um, which when you consider the national retail vacancy rate is about 14%. Uh, they're, they're doing really, really well. So I think what you see in, in times of stress is really customers and retailers flocking to those destinations with the surest signs of success and the lowest risk. Let's drill down to some of the reasons that your bid has managed to stand out a little. I mean, you, you've been very modest, but I've seen some of the data and Newcastle is beating the trend. And there's no question about it. You can tell our viewers and listeners how in a minute. But what is the methodology you've brought to it to, to make it beat the trend? I think our methodology is relatively simple. We tend to look at Newcastle uh, not in sort of sectoral silos like retail, leisure, F&B, hospitality, professional services, but rather look at the city as a whole and also... I suppose that what we call low-hanging fruit, those assets that we have that are genuinely world-class, but we just don't make the most of. Uh, and we work very closely with business, which is really important because you're benefiting from their in-depth sectoral knowledge and experience, most often at zero cost. Uh, I hasten to add, they're passionate about the city and they wanted to improve. So you tend to get from point A to point B in a really quick time. Um, notwithstanding, we work with our partners in terms of the city council, uh, the police, Northumbria police, that side of things. But uh, as I think John touched on before, decision-making, uh, certainly at the national public sector level locally, doesn't tend to be uh, designed to be quick or necessarily produce the best outcome in terms of the decision that is eventually reached. You've gone for something that it looks to me as an outsider looking in. You've you've supplemented the police presence on the city centre with rangers. Uh, it feels I felt on Saturday when I was there very safe, um, and do, you do seem to have a really good offer. What do the rangers do, and how what, what's all that been about? The street rangers very much working in response to concerns from businesses uh, and the general public. Uh, Newcastle is the safest of uh, the core cities uh, in the UK. Um, so there's no doubt about that. I think what 
the street rangers are really there to tackle is perceptions of safety, not necessarily the reality in terms of crime. Uh, and a lot of that comes down to antisocial behaviour, uh, whether that's intoxicated people on the street, graffiti, things like that. So really our street rangers act as eyes and ears um, on the ground, boots on the ground. That's what people want to see. That's what businesses and people feel reassured by. Um, and and you've, done something about, you've done something about shoplifting policy as well as a result. Could you just illustrate, illustrate that and the scale of the problem? Well, the, the scale of the problem is probably uh, Newcastle's uh, loss rate, very similar across the country, has probably doubled from about 1% per annum to 2% in about 10 years. Uh, what we're doing differently in Newcastle is we have business crime reduction partnership, which makes uh, information sharing really easy um, and reporting. And currently we are seeing really uh, are anyone street rangers recovering around about 80 percent of uh, retail thefts that are reported via this. So our guys are out on the street. You know, the retailers in store when they come, the thieves move outdoors, will report it to us. Um, and then we, we, we apprehend and recover uh, goods. I'm saying apprehend. We don't have arrest powers. But more, more often than not, simply if they're confronted, they uh, tend to hand over the goods. And the value of those goods, you were saying to me the other week, it's like a brink. If you did it over a year, it'd be like the brink smack robbery. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, Newcastle's uh, the dominant retail destination in, this, uh, in the region with, what, 25, 26 million uh, footfall per year in Eldon Square. Um, retail sales are in excess of a billion pounds. But... When you look at loss, thefts from store, that's probably running at around about 20 million per annum, which is not far away from the Brinks Mac gold bullion robbery. So it really puts it in context. You know, it might just be a handbag or some cheese or some steak uh, from a retailer. But when you add it all together over the year, it's a significant amount of money. OK, now let's go back to Graham. You've heard, the, so it's an interesting story what's happening mm. in Newcastle, actually. I, whenever I talk to Stephen, I find it fascinating. How does that contrast with, you, you go around all the different mm. types of towns, different markets, provincial towns seem to be moving towards independent shops yes, and, 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 and destinations about their, their history. City centres, that kind of initiative. Is that happening in other city centres in the north of England? Yeah, obviously, cause lots of the towns and cities have a bid, a business improvement district, but I would... I would always say, and I do champion Newcastle, I say uh, in terms of bids, Newcastle's bid is very good at, uh, at the work that it does. It's one of the better ones. Uh, but I think certainly uh, if you look at what's happening across uh, towns and cities of different sizes, it's very mixed, really. So I think uh, Stephen's right in that big cities like Newcastle have bounced back fairly robustly, although the footfall patterns are different because people are working differently. Um, Equally, some of the smaller towns, uh, even suburban parades and smaller mm. and smaller town centres, are doing okay actually, because those are the places where people are are working from home still and spending more time. So in many cases, those smaller towns did quite well during COVID because people were suddenly there more, and and at least some of that has stuck. And those places are also uh, often quite good places to start. Uh, independent businesses because it's more affordable. It's still it's still quite a challenge to start an independent business uh, in a in a place like Newcastle or even in Durham because al although business rates have uh, have fallen in many places, 
uh, since the 1st of April because of the revaluation. Uh, so in Durham, rates are, are down by about a third on average, which is it's, very good, it's it? really encouraging, but it, it, um, it's still, it can still be quite a hurdle to find a unit that's suitable mm. for an independent in a, in a place like that. And so certainly I, I would hope that as the market continues to evolve, it would be fantastic if over time, you know, uh, more independents can start to embed themselves in the centre of Newcastle and not just independent retail, but uh, as we were hearing, kind of a whole mix of, of leisure and, and, um, and food and drink and all kinds of other stuff as well. In your experience, is there any, uh, you know, absolutely golden ideas that you see in the course of your days in your consultancy that you think government uh, could, or, or even local government, could adopt uni universally that would make a difference? Yeah, um, as you'll know, I'm involved in the High Streets Task Force, which was set up by government uh, uh, four years ago. And, and that is all about sharing good practice and, and trying to uh, send uh, experts like me out and about around the country to, to, uh, to work with local authorities and to get them moving forward. And, and, it, and in many cases, places that are doing well um, are those where you do have really strong leadership, and that might be a council, it might be a bid as well, it might be all, all those partners working together, but certainly places that do have really good partnerships are the ones that are often doing well. So somewhere where the, so um, if you've got uh, councils, bids, uh, businesses, you know, uh, other key stakeholders, police as well, you know, all working in partnership, you know, those are the places where you're starting to see things happening because you can't control everything. You can't control uh, inflation and business rates and things, but there's a lot of things that you can control locally. Um, and bids like any one are often at the forefront of are providing that place leadership. All right, I'm going to give the last word to John. You were listening to our retail guys talk. Were there any takeaways you've, uh, having heard them, would, would consider that maybe uh, CPS would, would look at and, and advocate? Well, I think, uh, first of all, I just want to say that um, I probably came across being excessively gloomy in my, uh, my first contribution. I mean, listening to the guys talk, I mean, we are a country with fantastic retailers, beautiful towns, just so many strengths and that's really what frustrates people like me who work in the kind of policy world um that we have so much potential that we, britain to me feels like a kind of uncoiled spring where we could be doing so much better if we just if we put some of the right policies in in place i mean there's a great deal there. i was very struck by what stephen said about shoplifting in particular um i think crime is it's already high on the agenda but it's going to be really big at the next election um not just shoplifting but fraud as well for mm. online people who do a lot of their shopping online. It's a massive thing. We have this very strange anomaly where fraud is just not included by politicians in crime statistics, even though it's one of the biggest um, things. Oh, yeah, but yeah, certainly, well, I mean, we in the CPS, um, the think tank that CapEx is part of, we do a lot of work on retail. Business rates was something mentioned. We'd like to see that reformed, certainly. I think we, um, a lot of retailers would probably agree. It's a very unsatisfactory system. It's extremely burdensome. The fact that we do it based on rateable value instead of profit, um, I think is, is bizarre. Um, so, I mean, there's lots of things. Personally, and this is not CPS policy necessarily, I think that we are far too centralized as a country. Mm -hmm. um, Graham said there is a lot local people, local government can do, um, but it's a, it's a real like hodgepodge at the moment. We have mayors in some places with lots mm -hmm. of powers, in other places they don't have mayors. That can be good and bad. We have a kind of laboratory of policy in that in that way. Um, 
but I think I would personally like to see local government give, give a bit more control over their finances, a bit more autonomy in terms of tax raising. They have tiny little tweaks to council taxes and things they can do at the moment. Um, but yeah, I think pl- there's plenty for all of us in our various uh, with our various hats on to get stuck well, into. Um, and I think that you know we can we can have a bright economic and retail future if we make the right decisions. Well, John, that's that's a very interesting bookend to our. Uh, I introduced the, at the beginning talking about Philadelphia, where I visited, where they've got the what they describe in the Philadelphia magazine. I brought back as the most consequential mayor's race in history. It really is important, and in where Stephen is, there's going to be the first mayor's race pretty soon for their new devolved deal. But thank you, gentlemen, uh, for joining us. Uh, By the way, uh, it'll be our 100th episode of Business Unmuted soon, and we'll be changing the name of the podcast to the Northern Business Podcast. Never miss an episode. You can like, rate, and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Join us again soon.